In the fall, we spent 14 weeks um, studying the Holy Spirit, looking at what it means to be a community here at Ethos uh, that is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And so we wrapped up that kind of series back in December. And for the past couple months, we've been praying, we've been thinking about what is next, like what, what's for us as we gather on Sundays, what are we going to talk about, what are we going to tackle next? And, and we thought about the book of Mark. Mark's a book kind of in the middle of the Bible, 16 chapters all about Jesus, the things that he did on earth, the things that he taught about. And we were just thinking, man, if, if the Holy Spirit, the past 14 weeks we've been talking about, if his purpose is to help us live for Jesus and to live like Jesus, man, let's, let's look at Jesus under the microscope. Let's really hone into the things that he said, the things that he did, so that as a community, we can follow him. And so for the next however long it takes us to get through the book of Mark, we're, gonna, we're just going to really look at Jesus, going to look at the way that he lived, the things that he taught, and as a community, we're going to obey, we're going to follow. And so this is where we're going to go this morning as we start out in Mark chapter 1. I want to read our text. The first eight verses is where we're going to be today. So Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God from Mark chapter 1. What I love uh, about Mark is that he's just this incredible author who really understands his audience. Like as he was writing this book, he really understood who was going to pick up this book and, and read it and, and put it in their hands. I go, man, he does what any good author does. He, he, he speaks into the audience's questions, into their situation. So this is why so many of you can pick up Francis Chan's latest book and just devour it. It's why my wife can, on a Friday afternoon, pick up some Christian mystery fiction novel and the next day knock it out because uh, she does what a good author does. They speak into the questions, into our situations. What you need to know about Mark is he is this man who we think his life briefly overlapped with Jesus's while he was on earth. Mark was this amazing man of God that spent time with Paul, one of the men who, who, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He's, he was practically an intern of Peter for a season. And Mark, what you need to know is that he writes this book and his primary audience is people who didn't grow up in church. Like, as he's sitting down to write this, the, the people that he's writing to are people who have a lot more questions about God than they do answers. He's writing to people who are trying to figure out if this man, Jesus, really is who he says he is. I love the way Mark starts out. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, in this room, I just want to acknowledge this. There are some of you here this morning, you, just, you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's just the truth. You don't believe it. Some of you are in this place and maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a little while, but you've forgotten why Jesus is good news. 
You've gotten into the habit, the routine of reading and praying and coming to church, man, but your heart is not fully alive for God. You've, you've forgotten why such good news. Some of you are in this place and, and you don't believe in Jesus at all. And Mark just so powerfully meets us where we are. He says, man, if, if you, no matter where you are on your journey, if you're, if you're reading this book of mine, if you're here this morning, there's at least some curiosity going on in your life or your heart about who Jesus is. And so Mark just says, man, let me take you on an adventure. Let me show you and tell you about Jesus so you can experience, see for yourself who he is, what he's about. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Here's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to look at this man's life named John the Baptist. This guy that Mark starts out telling us about. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, at who he was. We're going to look at the purpose of his life and how he lived out his purpose very tangibly. So we're going to look at who John the Baptist was. We're going to look at the purpose of his life and how he lived out this purpose very tangibly. And you go, man, wait, I thought, Brandon, just a minute ago, you said we're going to be talking about Jesus. Who is this guy? Why aren't we talking about him? And Mark knew that it was important that, that for us to understand who John the Baptist is in order to appreciate and know Jesus. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at who he was. All week as I was reading these eight verses, I just kept thinking about this statement about John. You can write this down if you take notes. I want you to think about this. I want you to, to, to wrestle with this week. He was a man who was included by grace, but who chose to be God's man. John the Baptist was this man who was included by God's grace, but who chose to be God's man. And so all throughout the course of human history, I want you to think about this. From the very beginning of time, before there was anything in this world, God has been speaking promises through his prophets to his people about the things that he's going to do. And so right from the very beginning, I think what Mark is wanting us to see is that God is this great truth teller, that he's this great promise keeper. My grandfather on my mom's side, uh, his name was Freed, and he was one of my just heroes. And one of my just favorite people that, to ever live. I just adore him. I think the world of my grandfather. And I remember when uh, we were in high school, I have an older sister, younger brother, and I have two cousins kind of on that side of the family. And I remember him sitting us down and he said, man, I've, uh, I've lived a good life and, and, and I've saved some money. And what I want to do is I want to give some of my money to, to help you guys get through college. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. But then a couple weeks later, when I looked in my bank account and there was actually money in my bank account, I went, Wow. And I was thinking about this tension that we live in sometimes, that there is a difference in making promises and actually coming, following through with them. You know, when someone keeps their word, when someone says something and then actually follows through with it, I go, I don't know if there's, more, there's a more admirable characteristic about someone than someone who keeps their word, who says something and then does it. And I love what Mark is wanting us to see about who God is from the very beginning, that when God speaks a promise, he always keeps it. And so literally hundreds of years before John the Baptist appeared, literally hundreds of years before Mark sat down with a pen and piece of paper to write this book for us, God spoke to this man named Isaiah, this specific message in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And John the Baptist is proof that God keeps his promises. 
You know, what I love about John the Baptist is it was nothing but the grace of God that allowed him to be in the promises of God. It was nothing but the grace of God that allowed him to be in the promises of God. You know, I look at our lives and I go, man, if, if, if you are a Christian, if you're in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are living in the promises of God, if you, if you know God, if you serve God, if you worship him, if you enjoy him, if you know the Holy Spirit, if you serve Jesus as Lord, it's all because of his grace. You are included in the promises of salvation and hope and knowing God. Because of the grace of God, he has included you. Now look at John the Baptist. I go, man, it was, it was God that had moved in John's life. It was God who had kept his promise. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I go, man, it is, it is God who's been seeking you and speaking to you and walking with you and moving you to know Jesus, Lord. It's not because we are so good. It's because he's so great and his grace has flooded our lives it was a grace of God that allowed him to be in the promises of God. But I want us to see this. In the grace of God, John the Baptist actively chose to be God's man. While the gift of grace was just that, a gift, John understood that his job was to obediently be God's man. I love verse six. It's kind of confusing. I've read this several times before and I've always come to this and go, man, why don't they give us this detail? In, in verse six, Mark says, John the Baptist wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. I've always wondered why they listed out John's wardrobe for us. Why does the Bible tell us about what he chooses to eat? The Bible doesn't talk about what Jesus wore, what he ate. Doesn't go into detail about what Peter wore, what he ate. Why in the world do they give us this detail about John? And what I learned this week as I was reading and studying is that the clothes that he wore gave him away in their culture as a prophet. So in the same way that you and I might go down to Bridgestone Arena on Tuesday night and recognize one of the predators, one of the hockey players by their pads and their helmet and their stick and their skates, we recognize them by what they were wearing. In their culture, they saw the clothes that John was wearing. And they realized that there was something different about him. That he was serious about life with God. That, that life with God wasn't just a game. It wasn't just a part of his life. It fully consumed him. That he wanted people to know by the things that he chose to wear. Like that God was good. That he was God's man. And I also learned this week about his diet. And I go, man, it's so weird. It, it, it says that he eats locusts and wild honey. I go, what kind of weird diet is that? But what we need to know about his diet is that what he was eating, it was showing us that he was actively choosing to walk in obedience to God. He was showing to God that God's word meant something significant in his life. And so in the Old Testament, there were all these foods that God didn't want his people to eat back in the day for a host of reasons. But two of the things that God allowed and his people to eat were grasshoppers and honey. And I think in this small detail, what Mark is wanting us to see is that although God's grace was at work in John the Baptist's life, so too was obedience. You know, I love getting to be a part of a church full of people like this. 
They'd understand that it was nothing but the grace of God that has moved us into the promises of God. But we don't just like treat his, his grace, trample over his grace. We understand that with his grace comes this incredible responsibility to live in obedience, to walk in obedience, to show to God that, that he means something to us. Who was John? He was a man who was included by grace, but who chose to walk in obedience to God. The second thing that I want us to see in this text this morning is what was the purpose of his life? What was the purpose of John's life? Look with me at verses two and three. And so it says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John, the purpose of his life, he understood was to prepare the way in people's lives so that Jesus could come. He understood that the purpose of his life was to prepare people's lives so that Jesus could come. So the people around him, Jesus might reign, Jesus might heal, Jesus might save. Dave and I have been talking about this text for a couple weeks now, and he was telling me about this cool detail that he discovered as he was researching Mark. In the ancient world, when a king uh, would come to a town, when he would come to a city, his workers would literally go before him. And they would pave the road for him before he went in the city. So before his chariot or his horse or whatever it was that he was riding on, he'd send his workers and they'd fill in the potholes and they'd make sure the roads were smooth and straight so that the king could get to the people quicker. I love this. John understands just how significant and wonderful Jesus is. And John, this ordinary man, just like us, He understood that the best way to use his life was to live and talk and act in such a way that opened people up to really experience and know Jesus personally. He knew the best use of his life was to live and act and talk in such a way that people around him would be open to experience Jesus. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that, that you've spent time around them and after being around them, it didn't make you want to know God less, but it made you want to know God more. You ever been around somebody who just like the, the way that they talk, the way that they pray, the way that they live, the way that they work, the way they spend their money, the way that they live their lives. You go, man, I want to know God like that. I think about my buddy, Jake Burton. Jake goes to Marathon. And I remember when I was in school with Jake, he's a year younger than me. And he went on this like nine month, essentially mission trip. He spent time in Africa. And I remember when, when Jake came back, he's always just this good man, this guy that, that loved God. But there was something different about him when he came back from those nine months. Like the, the way that he, he knew God, the way that he interacted and served and prayed, I just, I knew that there was something different about what God was doing in his life. And it always made me want to know God more. It opened up in my life this curiosity to go, man, maybe there's some, something about God that I'm not experiencing yet that he clearly is. Or I think about my buddy Brad White. I don't know if you guys know Brad. He and his wife Janice, their son Robbie were a part of Ethos for several years. They just moved back with Daly and Weston and started a church in Memphis. It's going really well. But when I think about Brad, what I think about is him just telling me, man, whenever God speaks, I just, I'm obedient. God got a hold of Brad when he was in his late 30s. He understands that, man, that, 
that this is not just some game, that when the creator speaks, it's his job to obey. And I go, man, I don't, I don't walk like that. I still come to the table so many times negotiating, telling God what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do. And yet there's something about him and going, no, I know that's how I'm supposed to be made. I go, have you ever been around somebody that opened you up to know and to experience God more? I go, may our lives be the paths that open up the hearts of our friends and our coworkers, and our family members, and our neighbors, so that Jesus can come in. May our lives open people up to experience God, not push them away. And then the question that I think naturally arises is we, we look at John, we look at his life, is how did he do it? How do we do it? So this is the third thing I want us to think about this morning. How did he live out this purpose of, of opening the door for people to, so Jesus can come in? How did he do it? Very tangibly. Look with me in verse four. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Go to verse seven. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Mark tells us that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They were confessing their sins. They were getting baptized in some dirty river. And I was thinking about how so often like we can just read verses like this and it doesn't really hit home. We can just kind of read over it and there's no color, there's no life to this story. And I want us to think about this. Can you imagine like the entire city of Nashville, literally millions of people driving out to Smyrna to some field and all of us gathering around this guy who's eating grasshoppers and eating spoonfuls of honey. And we're so moved that we start confessing our sins publicly. We get baptized in the Cumberland. Can you imagine how crazy this was? I go, we barely confess sins to our small groups, to our house churches. Can you imagine like standing up in this room and confessing out loud the things that you did last night against God? Could you imagine? Let this story captivate us. Let our hearts, let our lives go into what was happening here. Can you imagine? And I go, what was unfolding here? What was happening? Why were so many people coming and responding? And I kept thinking, I don't think it was because John the Baptist was such a dynamic preacher. And I don't think it was because Smyrna was such a beautiful place that people were just moved by the, the goodness of God. People were hearing the truth about Jesus. They were hearing the truth about who he is and why he came. And when you hear the truth about who Jesus is and why he came, you can't help but be moved to respond. I love it that John was just simply telling people to get baptized. To repent from their sin and to be forgiven of it. You know, so it started this and, and Mark understands where we are, the things that we need to think about. The, 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 he meets us exactly where we are and all of our questions and all of our doubts. And I go, some of you, you don't really believe that Jesus is good news. And I love John right off the bat. He wants us to understand how Jesus is good news because in Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. The backdrop of the culture that 
Mark was writing to, the Jewish people, they understood that, that sin necessitated punishment. Sometimes even death. The original audience that, that Mark was living with, they understood, man, that, that sin always cost you something. It always cost you. So you can read this in Exodus chapter 22. You can read the entire book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Um, let's just take, for exa example, stealing. Stealing, we all know, is bad. It's not a good thing. If you didn't know that, you need to know that. It's not a good thing. Quit doing it. It's like, in their culture, stealing was a sin. And so the uh, majority of people in their days were farmers and so they had animals. And so there was a specific law in Exodus chapter 22. If you stole someone else's cow, if caught, you had to pay back five cows to the person you stole it from. There's this, this law. If you were sexually immoral, if you uh, messed around with your girlfriend, if you got caught up in sin and you had an affair, if, if you stumbled upon sin sexually, you know what happened? You died. Uh, the community would take you out and pick up stones and you would literally die. You publicly dishonored your parents by what you said, by how you lived. They take you right to the funeral home to let you pick out your coffin because you die. I was thinking about how in our culture, forgiveness of sin is cheap at best. And we kind of swing on two different sides of the fence here. We think that we deserve forgiveness or we think we don't need it at all. You know, God was really like doing a, a great work in my heart this week as I was reading this. Helping me understand how lightly I, I treat and think about my sin and what it actually is against God. Do you realize that, that sin is just open rebellion against our Father? You know, one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture is that God relates to us as our Father. He's not some distant, deistic God, but He's a Father who knows us and loves us, the, those of us who are righteous and those of us who are unrighteous, that, that He is our Father. James chapter 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. Jesus tells us in the Gospel that, 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 every, that, that, that everything that we have, God gives to us that he, he gives rain showers. He, he blesses us and feeds us, those of us who know him and those of us who don't. Do you realize that the clothes on your back, the job that you have, the money in your bank account, the car that you drive, the kids that you have, the food that you ate for breakfast, they're all gifts from God. All gifts because our Father loves us. This idea of sin is this state of having broken God's law and now being liable to legal consequences. And this idea of forgiveness is being formally released from our debts. And so John, man, John the Baptist, man, he, he shows up into these people who understood what sin cost them. Man, he doesn't show up and just say that, that God has forgotten your sin or that, that God ignores your sin, but what he wants these people to understand, he shows up and he proclaims that Jesus has chosen to become liable for our sin. That Jesus has showed up to pay for our consequence, to pay the debt. And the people were drawn to God. Not because John was so dynamic, 
because they realize how much God loved them. They realize that because of Jesus, they would not have to die. Because they messed up and had a weak moment, stole their neighbor's cow. Because the enemy overcame them on a Saturday night and they messed around with their girlfriend and before Jesus, they died. But because of Jesus, they lived. And part of the good news that Mark wants us to understand about who Jesus is, is that with Jesus, there is forgiveness. That with Jesus, though we deserve death and separation, we get life and forgiveness. There's also good news that comes with Jesus of repentance. Repentance is this this idea of, of turning to God. And the reason repentance is such good news is because when you follow Jesus, one of the things that, that if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you don't know this, but one of the things about those of us who are Christians is we continue to fall and mess up that none of us are perfect in the way that we're living. But what Jesus does is he allows us to turn our hearts back to God when we fail. The good news is that when we realize that we've sinned, Jesus' proof, God hasn't given up on us. You know, there's nothing more devastating than, than when we love God and we, when we sin against him. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where, where you're walking with God and you just stumble up into sin. And sometimes we're, we're callous to our sin and what it does to God, but sometimes God really allows us to feel what we've done against him. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you just are, are brought to your knees because of your sin. And the great news of Jesus is that in our sin, we get to get back up. We get to get back on the bike. We get to start walking with him again. And John the Baptist just simply told people like you and me about Jesus. What happens when Jesus is in your life? He says this in verse 7. He says, after me comes the one more powerful than I. He's talking about Jesus. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so John uses this illustration that would have meant much to them, but to us, we just kind of skip over it. In their society, uh, didn't have shoes. Wealthy people wore sandals, but the rest of us would just walk around barefoot. And so uh, I'd invite you over to my house on a Tuesday night and the lowest person in our family, so Jones, our little six-month-old, he'd be washing your feet. Or if you're wealthy enough to have a servant in your house, the servant would, would wash all the guests' feet. And John is wanting us to see just how powerful and significant Jesus is. He says, I know Jesus and I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take off his sandals, much less wash them. You see, there's something about John the Baptist that he really believed in Jesus. Not a concept, not a historical figure, the Son of God, Savior of the world, only hope. There was something about John that believed in Jesus' power. You see, John knew that people didn't need more of John, they needed more of Jesus. I was thinking, man, do, do I really believe that? Like this Brandon, like, do I really believe that what people need is more of Jesus? 
Do I, need the, do I believe that what you need is better sermons from me, better illustrations? Do I believe that you need more one-on-one -on -one time, more coffee time with me? Or do I believe that what you need, the best thing that I can give you to tell you, to point you towards is that you and I need Jesus. We need him. We need his forgiveness. We need his grace. We need his power. We need Jesus. Do we believe this? Do we believe that he's more significant than us? That he matters more than us? Do we believe that he's more powerful than us? Do we believe that if we start paving the way for our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors so that Jesus can come in, so that Jesus can reign and heal, do we believe that he'll actually come through? Do we actually believe in Jesus? Or do we call ourselves Christians, but we're really just worshiping a God that was? Not a God who is. I went to Murray on Wednesday. Murray, Kentucky is where I'm from. And my first niece was born. My younger brother um, had his first baby. And none of you guys are excited about that. So um, I'll be excited by myself. Um, her name is Sutton and she's perfect. And we were driving back from uh, Murray on Wednesday night. And I noticed my wife, she was sitting in the passenger seat of her car and she was uh, like locked in front of her phone. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading this powerful story. Hold on, I'll read it to you in a minute. It's like, okay. And she proceeds to read the story. And I want to just, I literally just want to read this story verbatim to you this morning. Uh, it's a friend of ours, kind of mutual friend. She kind of lives in Spring Hill. She doesn't kind of live in Spring Hill. She lives in Spring Hill. And um, saw this, she posted this story on Facebook on Wednesday night. And uh, I, I just want to share it. And uh, so I invite you just to listen to these words. I'm not the best reader. Um, pay attention though. This is powerful. Last night was the worst night of my life. I don't say that flippantly. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, verse four. Yesterday at 9, 15 a.m., Beckett, my youngest son, woke up with 102 fever. I gave him some Tylenol and popsicles for breakfast and he started to feel a little cooler. Before nap time, I gave him a little ibuprofen and he slept for three and a half hours. He doesn't usually take that long of a nap, but I just thought maybe he didn't sleep well the previous night. He woke up extremely lovey and clinging to me, which I don't mind, but I wasn't able to get anything done. When David, my husband, got home, I asked him to hold Beckett while I fixed dinner. David was holding Beckett in his lap and noticed that he felt hot, so he started to unzip his footy jammies a little bit at the top and Beckett jerked. At first, David thought it startled Beckett, but then something wasn't right. David yelled for me. I ran. Beckett jerked a few more times, convulsing. His eyes weren't open. They wouldn't open. I asked David to call my dad with my phone. David was calling 911 with his. I picked up Beckett and swiped his mouth, even though he hadn't eaten anything. I wanted to make sure he wasn't choking. Nothing. I fell to my knees in our entryway, trying to see him in better light. Then his eyes started rolling back. I've never seen anything like this. It was surreal. I wanted to scream and cry at the same time. The Holy Spirit came upon me and led me. I didn't scream. I didn't cry yet. I looked Beckett up and down, looking for what could have caused whatever was happening. I held his torso in my hands and had his, felt and had his head back as it fell limp. His arms and legs, too, limp. I felt as if I was holding my dead baby. It was the worst feeling in the entire world. I wanted to scream. I didn't. I prayed. 
Lord, you're the God of the universe. You raised people from the dead in the past, and I know you can do it today. Lord, in your name, I ask you to raise Beckett from the dead. Lord, please, God, I am nothing. You're everything. Could you please come to my rescue and heal my baby? Please, Lord, please. I know you can do it. I know it. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Please heal my son. Beckett's lips were blue. He wasn't breathing at all. I tried talking to him, singing to him, blowing in his face, nothing. All this occurred in about 15 seconds. David told me to get in the car. David grabbed her oldest son, Paxton, and I had Beckett in my arms. I was tearing Beckett's jammies off of him as we were walking outside. It was so cold and we got in the car. There I was holding what felt like my lifeless baby's bare body. And then the prayer started getting fierce, bold, confident. Lord, you will heal my child. You performed miracles in the past and you have not stopped now. You are still the miracle worker. You can do this, God. You can. We are powerless, but you are power, oh God. Your power can bring him back to life. Breathe on him, God. Breathe your breath. Yahweh, give him life. The enemy came to steal and kill and destroy, but you, you have come to give life and give it abundantly. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, breathe on my son, Lord. And Beckett began to breathe. Now I was crying. His chest was moving up. His chest was moving down. I could hear it. Air going through his tiny naked body. Up, down, up, down. Oh God, yes, more of this God. Yes, more of this God. Life. Yes, Lord. Yes, we thank you for this. We thank you for this life. We thank you for this air, this breath, tears. Beckett was completely unresponsive, but he was breathing. All this time, David was on the phone with 911. We drove to the nearest fire station since we live out in the country. We asked the ambulance to meet us at the fire station. When we got there, Beckett was still breathing, unresponsive, but breathing. The EMS worker started to give him oxygen and evaluate him. When they started messing with his feet, Beckett began to wake up. He was responding. His eyes were red. He looked so confused. I hurt for him. I wanted to take his place. The EMS workers were excited to see him responding. They reassured me that all this was great sign. The ambulance came about five minutes later. They attached Beckett's car seat to the stretcher and loaded him in. I went in the ambulance with Beckett. While in the ambulance, the EMS guy told me to keep saying whatever I was saying in Beckett's ear because it was working. I told the man I was whispering the word of the Lord to him. Scripture, prayers, scripture, blessings, thankful words, promises, Christian lullabies. Then it hit me. Perhaps this didn't happen just for Beckett. Maybe this isn't about him or me or David. What if this was for someone else? What if he was using this for his glory? What if he was using this for his good? I started looking, praying for doctors, praying for nurses, praying for firefighters, praying for EMS workers silently. Then I started talking to the EMS worker in the ambulance. What if I were there for him? I asked him if he was a Christian, not a Christian, but very much a God believer. We talked more and he was Jewish. I secretly prayed for him. Then I just really felt the spirit asking me to pray over him out loud. So I did. I asked if I could approach the Lord for him and with him to pray blessings over his life. He kindly agreed. I reached for his hand. Sometimes it's a little acts of Christian love that God is asking us to share with others. We don't know where it will lead, but we must be obedient to the Lord's leading, even if or rather, especially when it's awkward. We arrived at the ER. Beckett was showing great signs the entire ride there that they didn't turn the sirens and lights on. I knew that was a good sign. He was taken to urgent care room too. Beckett was completely normal once we got there. He was still running a fever and was absolutely terrified of the crowd of doctors and nurses, but all good signs. No one seemed to be too concerned, which seemed like a great sign. They took his temp, which was 101, and checked his breathing. The nurse gave him some Tylenol. Then everyone left the room. My dad walked in. He reassured me that it was a good sign that they found us in urgent care instead of critical care. I quietly prayed for those in the CCU. 
I quietly prayed for all the babies and parents in the room surrounding us. Yes, thank you, God, that we are not in the critical care unit, but show yourself to those who are. Save their babies. Bless them. Be near them. Later, my mom came in. Later, my brother Heath came in and prayed and read scripture over my son. Later, my sister-in-law, Mary Beth, came in. I received many texts from the rest of our family. I heard they were praying in the waiting room. I could feel it. For the next hour or so, we waited. We found this backpack in the car because Beckett loved reading, eating a snack, playing with stickers and coloring, and he ate and drank. He was alive. He was breathing. He was smiling. He was dancing. He was here. Last night and today, I've constantly wrestled with, what if, with all the what ifs. What if he had died? What if we were planning my baby's funeral? How would I survive? How would David and I handle it? What would Paxton do? I quickly realized that these negative thoughts were not going to help me. I'm continually thinking these thoughts, taking these thoughts captive and putting them at the feet of Jesus and thanking him, thanking him that these did not happen, thanking him for every moment that I felt a comforter surrounding my entire body, mind, and soul with his peace that surpasses all understand. Thank you. Thanking him for my quick thinking husband, thanking him for everyone who had medical training for moments like these, praying for those whose babies had different outcomes, hurting for them, grieving with them, thanking God over and over again for his blessing of life, thanking him for healing my son. My son is alive. There's a reason for this. Is it for you? Do you need to know that God is still the miracle worker? Do you need to know that he still hears our prayers? Do you need to know that he loves you more than your parents could ever love you? Do you need to be encouraged by his grace and mercy to, his, to be his followers? Do you need to hear a story with a good ending? Whatever the reason, whoever needed to hear this, I told God that I would be faithful to write this and share it to bring him glory. May everything in my whole life bring glory and honor and praise to the one who can raise the dead. Eternally grateful to God forever. Here I am, Lord, use me. I'm yours, my son is alive. Side note, when David first called my mom, he told her that Beckett wasn't breathing. She called my dad, my brothers and sister-in-laws. I'm not sure who else, but immediately this great cloud of witnesses dropped on their faces and prayed for my son. And I do believe that God heard all of our prayers. I believe he heard the petitions. I know he did. I emailed this girl and just asked her if I could share the story. And she said, yes. She said, but I want you to share one verse with your church. She said, I want you to share Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, which says, we will, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by Christ's perfect sacrifice, and by the word of our testimony. I share this story this morning because I want you to know that, that Jesus Christ is real. God is real. That this is not some game, that he's not just part of our lives. That every one of us, we will meet our maker when we die. He's real. And if you don't know him, come to know him. On Wednesday night, Court was reading me the story and we were just bawling our eyes out as we were reading it. She couldn't even read through it because she was crying so much and she was sniffing. She had so much snot running down her face and we were, just, I mean, we were just so caught up in the power of God. And I kept thinking about the movement of God in my life. And a couple weeks ago, I shared a story over at Marathon about how I've experienced God how one of the most, in one of the most darkest and painful and heart-wrenching moments in my life. God showed himself to me most clearly, most powerfully, most beautifully. I go, I know that there's a God. 
And I know that I'm a friend of his. You think about what your friends do. Your friends love you. Your friends take care of you. Your friends listen to you. You can be a friend of God. John the Baptist paved the way for people so that Christ could come in. There are some of you that are here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, but man, you look at your life and you go, man, I know who John the Baptist was in my life. It's my sister-in-law. It's my neighbor. It's my friend. It's that person who comes in a coffee shop every morning and tells me about Jesus. And you look at your life and God is trying to invite you to him. And if you don't know God, I don't want you just to know more about God. I invite you to know him. And here in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to take communion. And if you want to know God, God is for anyone. In Jesus, there's forgiveness. In Jesus, there's life. If you want to give your life to Jesus this morning in baptism, if you're ready to to be done with the life that you're living, if you want to know God, we have some men and women that will be up front, the Red Respond banner, and we just do this so that you can see some people. If you want to talk or pray, we'll be up here. Come to know him. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, may we live for the purposes of God. May we pave the way for Jesus to come into people's lives so they can experience his presence and his power. You know, all week as I was preparing for this, what I just kept sensing is that I I did not want this sermon to be polished or well-articulated because I think sometimes we feel this pressure when we when we talk about Jesus, that we, it has to be rehearsed and it has to be beautiful and it has to be polished. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been forgiven of every sin, if you've been seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, if you know God more than just a concept, if you know God, if you enjoy the Holy Spirit, may the entire life that God has given to you be about paving the way for others to come to know Jesus. May we not settle for anything else. What if you and I, Brian, can you imagine if you spent your entire life and the only thing that people thought about you is that, man, people came to Jesus because of him. Ryan, what if that was your life? They didn't know you as an accountant or a friendly guy. What if when people thought about you, they go, man, when, when, when I think about Ryan, I think about people coming to know Jesus, I go, this is simple. What simple people like you and me can do. So I want to send us to communion this morning. Just asking you a few questions. Can you and will you tell people that Jesus has come to forgive sins? Can you and will you tell people that Jesus is powerful? That he will come through? You know, I think so often... Dave and I were talking about this. We, we view our work as Christians so many times as like bouncers, like who can come in, who can come to God, who can know him, who can enjoy him. And the picture that John gives us is a much better one, one of an usher. That instead of determining who gets to come in, that we walk with people so that Jesus can come in. Let's not let our lives be just about coming to church.
and singing some songs and hearing some sermons, some thoughts. May we, filled with the Holy Spirit, open the door so that people can come to know Jesus. Let's pray.